Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. On the science revolution, Dr. Justin Frank drops by on the current assessment of Trump's mental state. Meteorologist Dr. Jeff Masters will tell us about 2020's record-breaking hurricane season and how a hurricane can go from 40 to 110 miles an hour in just 24 hours. Tanya Sanarab from the Center for Biological Diversity is reporting on how massive wildlife imports are upping our future pandemic risk. Dr. Sam Metz is here on Medicare for All. He confirms that single payer provides better care for less money. Stay tuned. On the line with us is the co-founder of the Weather Underground, worked with the NOAA Hurricane Hunters, regular contributor to YaleClimateConnections.org, meteorologist Dr. Jeff Masters. Twitter handle, by the way, is Dr. Jeff Masters, D-R Jeff Masters, spelled just like it sounds. Dr. Masters, the go-to comment a decade ago or thereabouts when I used to have people like Mark Morano on this program and debate climate science with them was always, well, you can never say that one particular storm was caused by global warming every time you try to bring up anything. Is that signature of global warming becoming more and more obvious in things like Hurricane Delta and whatnot? It sure is. We're seeing an increase in the strongest hurricanes And we're also seeing an increase in the rates of rapid intensification. Storms like Delta, which are going crazy, you know, it was a 35-mile-an-hour tropical depression, and next thing you know, it was a Category 4 hurricane. Those types of intensification rates are increasing, and there is research showing that global warming has to be part of that. So right across the board, we're seeing global warming affecting our weather. Obviously, we're seeing, I'm in Portland, Oregon, what's happening in the West, you know, with the drying out of the forests. And across the Midwest, violent tornadoes and these derechos, is it pronounced? The lines of multi-mile long lines of 150 mile, 130 mile an hour winds. How do we get the media to start talking about it like this? How do we get local weather forecast, you know, things like that? They, they all want to dance around it like they're afraid of being criticized for pointing this out. There is a program that's designed to help TV meteorologists talk about climate change in their broadcasts. It's been going on for something like 10 years. In fact, I went to a workshop where we brought in some top climate scientists and then a bunch of local TV meteorologists. And we went through, you know, here's what climate change says about how it's affecting the weather. And maybe here are some ideas you can use in your broadcast. There's a group called Climate Central that puts out materials regularly showing for individual markets across the U.S., you know, here's how climate change is affecting the weather right now. So a lot of people are working on this, and I think it is better than it used to be. Uh, TV meteorologists now are less skeptical than they used to be about climate change, and you do see more stuff on air about climate change in the TV weather anyway. Yeah, it's a good step. I mean, we still have these fossil fuel billionaires funding, you know, these climate denier groups. It's just 
uh, absolutely breathtaking that 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 is that that is going on. Where does this go? I think most people are at least semi-aware, if not fully aware, that over the last 20 years or so, our weather has changed, and we're seeing the consequences of that. How bad will it get, and how quickly will it get that bad? You know, it's an an issue of shifting baselines. I mean, if the weather changes gradually enough, you're not realizing that it's changing, that, you know, okay, it's bad, but, yeah, it wasn't too bad 10 years. That was about the same 10 years ago. But anyways, yeah, I mean, it's going to go poorly for not just the U.S., but everywhere, because our infrastructure is designed for the climate of the 20th century. And in the 21st century, the climate's more extreme. We've heated up the oceans, we've heated up the atmosphere, and that's energy. Energy is going to create more extreme weather events and more intense extreme weather events. So things like our seawalls are going to be inadequate because there's going to be stronger storms, and they're also going to be inadequate because the sea level is rising. So our infrastructure for flooding is inadequate as well, the the levees inland and uh, flood control structures, because we're seeing more intense rainfall events. So you're going to see a lot more damage due to these kinds of effects. And there's not going to be enough money for everybody who needs it to start adapting. We've got to get on board with doing a massive overhaul of our infrastructures sooner rather than later. And in particular, I'm always campaigning against no more development on barrier islands. We should not be developing in low-lying floodplains. We should be retreating from these vulnerable areas. Back in the 90s, I wrote a book about the relationship between fossil fuels and climate change. It was called The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And back then, the biggest signature that we had, uh, the biggest indicator that we had that there was a climate crisis happening right in front of us, even though it was not in the news, was the insurance industry, specifically the reinsurance mm-hmm. industry. These giant companies that backstop the smaller insurance companies. Uh, Swiss Re had come out in, I think it was 95, because I, I wrote this book in 96, or published it in 96, uh, had come out and said, you know, we're anticipating that over the next couple of decades, we're going to see substantial risks for the insurance industry, and we need to be anticipating that right now. Um, is the insurance industry still playing a significant role in warning about the consequences of global warming because it's a direct threat to that industry. What other industries are starting to pay attention? Yeah, certainly the insurance industry is on board. They they see their bottom line being affected by climate change every year. The number of disasters is going up, and how expensive these disasters are is also increasing at a very concerning pace. So, uh, yeah, I see people in the insurance industry all the time beating the drum on this. Uh, they're, They're very aware of the risks. And it's starting to be the greater business community as well is starting to understand the risks as well. Because, uh, for instance, in the real estate industry, it's happening now that properties along the coast that are low-lying are not going up in value as much as they used to and not as much in value as the neighboring higher elevation properties. So the real estate industry is taking notice of this. And it's going going to be a matter of time before some parts of the coast there's going to be an all-out retreat where people are going to say, hey, you know, I can't pay these flood insurance premiums anymore. I'm going to move away. And it's going to be a real shock to cities that are relying on those tax incomes to help fund the infrastructure. And it's going to be difficult to sustain the the city's operations when you get people leaving en masse because, you know, A, their homes are getting flooded, and, and B, they're deciding to get out of there because it's no longer 
affordable to live by the coast. We're talking to meteorologist Dr. Jeff Masters, a regular contributor to Yale Climate Connections and the uh, co-founder of the Weather Underground, the weather site, <laughs> not, not, not the old anti-war site. I'm wondering best practices. What are other countries doing that we are failing to do that we should be paying attention to and considering emulating? Certainly educating the people. I mean, we have a very strong climate denial industry here in the U.S. You know, the uh, amount of lobbying money that's spent by fossil fuel companies for Congress is just astronomical. And other countries don't have that sort of organized denier movements, and they're much more on board with, you know, doing sensible things. Certainly, we need to rejoin the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, We can learn from the rest of the world. Basically, everybody but the U.S. is in that. So the sooner we get back in that agreement, the better. And, you know, we just need to both mitigate, which means, you know, reduce our emissions, and we need to adapt. We need to spend more money to defend our coasts where it makes sense to defend them against rising sea levels and not build in high-risk areas. I saw where uh, Venice, Italy, movable seawalls to stop the flooding. Do you see that coming to American cities? Oh, absolutely. In America, we react reactively rather than proactively. We're going to have to defend Houston, Tampa Bay, New York City. All those places are going to need something like Venice has. Amazing. Dr. Jeff Masters, regular contributor to YaleClimateConnections.org. His Twitter handle, Dr. Jeff, Dr. Jeff Masters. Dr. Masters, thanks for dropping by. Great talking with you. We've had quite a few conversations about Donald Trump's mental state, the revelations from Mary Trump's book, you know, some of the other stories that are coming out, his, the release of his taxes. You know, it looks like this guy for at least 20 years has been living almost exclusively on credit and his whole life has been a lie, you know, it's a large chunk of it anyway. And, and then yesterday, the, the, you know, my pointing out that I remember taking steroids when I had a complication from surgery five, six years ago when we lived in D.C. And for a couple of days there, I thought I was Superman. I mean, I wasn't ready to jump off the top of buildings to see if I could fly, but I was damn close to it. I was convinced I was invincible. This is the best show I ever did in my life, is what I told my wife when I came home. And I'm just wondering, you know, let's ask a real professional, somebody who actually understands this stuff, not just the pharmacology and the psychopharmacology, but the psycho behind you know, on who, on who that pharmacology is being applied. Dr. Justin Frank, MD, psychoanalyst and clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University, the author of Trump on the Couch, among other on-the-couch books, uh, is with us. Justin Frank, MD, is his Twitter handle. Uh, Dr. Frank, welcome back. Uh, I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on, you know, that kind of uh, list that I just tossed out. Okay, first of all, the uh, Walter Reed doctors made a terrible mistake because you don't discharge a person in the middle of steroid treatment without a mood stabilizer. When you took steroids, they didn't think you needed a mood stabilizer uh, because you didn't have a history of being as uh, crazy as Trump is. And you didn't have a history of being so grandiose and have a God complex and all the things I wrote about in my book and all the things that Mary Trump uh, validated uh, in that. The thing is that with steroids, when you are already a person who has impulse disorders, who has a God complex, who already doesn't sleep a lot, 
who may in fact even be addicted to Adderall, for all we know, you don't let them out of the hospital without a mood stabilizer. That could be some form of a tranquilizer, which I wouldn't use, but there are certain things that we use in, uh, as mood stabilizers for people who have bipolar disorder, but they can work for people who are about to have a steroid-induced psychosis. This excess steroids, what they do to a person like Trump in particular is they make a short-tempered person more short-tempered. They make a person with a God complex much more grandiose. So he, he says in his interview last night or his video thing where I'm immune. I could be immune to this disease. Right. Don't worry yeah. about it. It's okay. You Americans shouldn't have to worry. Don't let the COVID fears dominate your life. This is psychotic. This is grandiose. But this is also augmented and increased by the steroid use that has made him more crazy than he would otherwise be. So what it can we expect when the steroids out. wear off? Well, we hope, hopefully they should intervene now to make his mood more stable. The problem is when the steroids wear off, the best thing would be if he fell asleep for a couple of weeks. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, the big thing that would happen when the steroids wear off um, is that he'll be stuck with what he's done. I don't think he's going to change because of his psychology. He can't ever admit that he made a mistake or said that he spoke too much or he was too grandiose. I mean, one of the, the chapters that I keep coming back to in Trump on the Couch is about his destructiveness. It's compulsive. It's deep. And he has a destructive part of his personality that was always battling with the building part of his personality as a builder, but he's much more of a, a destroyer. And one of the things that destructiveness does is it drives his need for revenge. So when he wrote, uh, he, he's, he's, he's biblical. Listen to what, this is what he said in the art of the comeback. I believe in an eye for an eye, like the old Testament says. Some of the people who forget to live a, lift a finger when I needed them, when I went, when I was down, they need my help now, and I am screwing them against the wall. I'm doing a number, and I'm having so much fun. People say it's not nice, but I really believe in getting even. That's a direct. I'm reading for that. That's what Trump wrote. This wow. is a man who, on steroids is dangerous. He's dangerous. This is written without steroids. Right. What are you going to do if he's I've president? Been, yeah, I've been laying out a theory here. We've got about two minutes to the end of the segment. I've, I've been laying out a theory here that Trump's response to coronavirus and the Republican parties is really no different than their response to Social Security or Medicare or unemployment insurance or seatbelts, for God's sake. You know, back when Ralph Nader was saying we could save thousands of lives if we had seatbelts, and the Republicans are like, yeah, it's too much trouble, it's too much expense, that's not the proper role of government, let private industry do it. What do you think of that? I agree with you. I actually agree with you 100%. The psychology of rugged individualism is one of the things that this country was founded on. Don't Fence Me In is a very important song of the Westerners. Uh, this is part of America. This is Reagan. Government is the problem. 
The problem with that problem is that the people who say rugged individualism forget that everything was built, many things were built on the back of slaves. So Mm -hmm. this is rugged individualism. I guess when you enslave a bunch of people, you can think of yourself as a rugged individualist, which is what Republicans do. And Elizabeth Warren really talked about that the clearest a year, a few years ago. She says, you know, who built the highways that the rich people could get to their office on? I mean, all these things are done. And I think that you're right. That's how the Republicans approach things. If we just deregulate everything, all will be fine. That is crazy. Right, and government doesn't have a responsibility to protect the people except from foreign invasion. And therefore, it's not our job to keep you safe from COVID-19. That's correct. That's correct. In fact, we have to protect ourselves from the government because, as Trump has been saying to people in Virginia, that governor's going to take away your uh, your Second Amendment rights. There you go. There you it's go. Tough. Dr. Justin Frank, uh, professor, his, his, his book is brilliant, uh, uh, Trump on the Couch, uh, a clinical professor at the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at George Washington University. Dr. Frank, thanks so much. It's always great talking with you. Thank you, Tom. Tanya Sanarib is on the line with us. She is International Legal Director and Senior Attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity. And the uh, biologicaldiversity.org is the website. And uh, Center for BioDIV is the Twitter handle. And the lead author on a new report, America's Massive Wildlife Imports Fuel Global Pandemic Risks. Tanya, welcome to the program. Tell us about this. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the main point here, Tom, is guess what? The U.S. is a big part of the problem when we look at pandemic risk worldwide. We take up 20% of the global wildlife trade. And I don't think most people realize that. 20% of the global wildlife? You know, I... I I, I don't think the average person has any idea about this. Is is this... This isn't big game hunter. I mean, what is this? Where... (laughs) <laughs> how, do, how do we end up with that? Right. So our report looked specifically at three kinds of animals. We looked at bats, rodents, and primates. Why did we look at those guys? Well, they are the animals that right now, of all the zoonotic viruses that we know about, and these are just the known ones, these species harbor 75% of those viruses. So when we're thinking about future disease risk, these types of animals They're a big player. And it turns out the U.S. over a recent five-year period imported over 20 million parts, products, bodies, skins, jewelry, blood samples, you name it, from bats, primates, and rodents. Wow. And bats brought us SARS and COVID, and rodents brought us the the bubonic plague uh, via their fleas. And, and, and I'm assuming other diseases, uh, you know, there's a virus down in the southwest that rodents spread through their urine. And then primates, of course, brought us HIV AIDS. I'm sure there's other diseases. Absolutely, absolutely. But one of the really interesting things that we found in this report and doing this analysis is the majority of those imports into the U.S., there are dead animals. We do some amount of live trade in in bats and rodents and primates, absolutely, but the vast majority of our imports are dead. And that means that the U.S. 
while our disease risk isn't that high because dead specimens aren't as risky as live animals are, it means that we're outsourcing our disease risk. And so we analyzed the top five exporting countries for all three bats, rodents, and primates. And guess what? China made the list for all three. Hmm. And that means Hmm. that, you know, we've been pointing our finger at China saying they're the problem here for this disease. But in fact, U.S. consumer demand is a part of the problem. We have demand for bats, rodents, primates. They're all coming from China and other global hotspots around the world. So we can't just point our fingers at other countries. That that was one of the things that really leapt out at me. The other part of That's the analysis astonished. we did is we looked at why are we bringing these, these animals across our border. And it turns out commercial demand, so things that people buy at stores, they made the top three reasons. So it's commercial demand, scientific research, biomedical research. Those are the top three right, reasons. And, the, and so right. for us as consumers, right. we're importing bats encased in acrylics for paperweights, primate skulls and skeletons to decorate our homes, and rodent fur for fishing flies. Really? Wow, for fishing so flies. That's amazing. Basically trinkets. We're looking for trinkets. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. fueling our demand for the wildlife. And that's a huge problem from a disease risk standpoint. It's right, also it, a big it, problem, it, though, for the biodiversity crisis. Right. So essentially what we're doing is we're going to poorer countries around the world and we're saying, go into your most pristine habitats. Go into the areas where humans don't normally go and acquire these animals so that you can sell them to us and we will give you money. And then when those people are interacting with those animals, they get diseases and ultimately those diseases can go worldwide as we've seen with H- everything from HIV to, to, uh, to SARS to, to uh, COVID. And geez, what a mess. Is there, is there, you know, what's the solution to this, Tanya? Is it, is it legislative? Is it cultural? Is it, how do, what do we do about this? All of the above, definitely. So I think the first thing, the most important thing that the U.S. needs to do, and this is true for the U.S. and other big consumer markets, the EU, China, Japan, we are the main consumers of wildlife around the world. We need to throw up trade moratoria. We need to put in place a ban and say we're drying down U.S. demand. So that's the first thing that Hmm. we have to do. Obviously, that's going to have ripple effects around the world. So we need to have funding for transitions of livelihoods away from the wildlife trade to other professions. And then the other key thing is that we have to work on conservation of biodiversity. We're in the midst of of an extinction crisis globally. The U.S. needs to refocus our priorities and ensure that we're leading in this quest to conserve nature. It's a lot. It's a lot we have to tackle. But if you listen to the scientists, what they're saying is we have to transform our entire relationship with nature. And that starts with the wildlife trade ban. Do you have any champions in Congress? Well, interestingly, just yesterday, a bill was introduced um, by Cornyn and Booker, and it's a great start. Um, Basically, what it does is it would end wildlife markets in the U.S. Um, It provides a lot of funding for the U.S. to work globally, not just on getting rid of wildlife markets, but also on conserving nature, which I just said is really crucially important, enforcing wildlife laws. Um, And then it would restrict U.S. imports and exports of live wildlife, um, just terrestrial species for food and for medicine. So it's a really good first start, but I think that we have a lot more work to do. Yeah, that's remarkable. That's uh, John Cornyn of Texas and Cory Booker of New Jersey.
That's correct, yes. Yeah. Oh, good guys. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of John Cornyn, but, you know, I'm glad he, he uh, co-sponsored this. Tanya, it's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it with, it, with us. And, and I'm assuming people can get all the information they need about this over at biologicaldiversity.org, your organization. That's your absolutely website. right. Great. Tanya, thank you so much. Tanya Sanareb is the International Legal Director and Senior uh, Attorney with the Center for Biological Diversity and the lead author of this new report, America's Massive Wildlife Imports Fuel Global Pandemic Risks. Really worth checking out. Tanya, thank you again for dropping by. You are doing God's work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Sponsoring the interview this week is... <sighs> The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Amy Coney Barrett on her way to the Supreme Court, having pre-proclaimed she thinks John Roberts certainly should have struck down Obamacare in its entirety back in the day, right? A couple of years ago when he had the chance. Dr. Sam Metz is with us on this topic and, and, and broadly uh, healthcare in general. He's a member of Physicians for National Health Program, PNHP, and Mad as Hell Doctors. He's a retired anesthesiologist, SamuelMetz.com or PNHP.org. Uh, the website's PNHP is the Twitter handle as well. Dr. Metz, welcome to the program. Where do we go with this? I mean, first of all, it, just very quickly, kind of for the record, it's, uh, you know, I, I realize probably most of my listeners know this and could recite it to us, but let's just recap very, very quickly how, how stupid and wasteful our current healthcare system is and what 
benefit we would get from a Medicare for all type single payer system like Canada has? Uh, stupid and inefficient is being gracious to our health care system. We have the most inefficient health care system ever created. We spend twice as much money as the average industrialized country on almost every measure of outcome. We are at or near the bottom. It's destroying families. It's destroying businesses. We're the only country that has medical bankruptcies, and we're the only country that has labor management disputes over health care benefits because we're the only country that expects our employers to provide health care. Any country provides better care to more people for less money than we do, not just Canada, France, Germany, Japan, Australia, Malta, Spain, Andorra, they all do better than we do. We need a big change, and we need to emulate them. Yeah, let's learn from what well, works. This is, so, Dr. Metz, if Barrett is on the court, and the court hears the Obamacare case and strikes down Obamacare, it occurs to me that that may actually be a good thing, because, you know, Obamacare is this kludge that was put together by the Heritage Foundation and put into place in Massachusetts by Republican Governor Mitt Romney, uh, you know, back in the day. And it really just, you know, yes, it exp- extended service to, you know, in health care to 20 million people. And, and had it not been gutted by John Roberts in the Supreme Court, you know, it would have expanded Medicaid, which would have been a good thing. But still, it's just a it's a partial remedy that is still shoveling literally a, a, an unnecessary trillion dollars a year into that industry. Um, so do you are, are you guys preparing for what might happen if Obamacare gets struck down? It's like, hey, this is the opportunity to promote Medicare for all. And, and also, are you preparing a constitutional argument against, uh, you know, uh, Amy Barrett's argument that, you know, the Constitution doesn't say anything about health care? Uh, you know, you didn't have health care during the founding generation. And so if we're going to be originalists and we have to run America according to the standards of 1787, I mean, she's already said she's OK with separate but equal, um, which is not quite as bad as 1787. But, uh, you know, what do, what do we do? Yeah, she could set the country back 200 years to the good old days before electricity and antibiotics for health care. The Affordable Care Act gave millions of Americans more access to health care by expanding Medicaid. But if you've got private insurance, you're worse off than you were before the Affordable Care Act. It makes America far more dependent on private health insurance than it ever was before. If the Affordable Care Act is struck down, it means millions of Americans will lose their Medicaid it also means that everyone will appreciate how desperate our situation has become and how we need to replace private health insurance with a tax-funded, single-payer, universal care plan. Anyone can see anyone, any physician. Physicians are paid on the value of their service, not like they are now on the value of their insurance. It's a big change Every other country has a universal care plan, and we don't. They all provide better care to more people for less money than we do. The Affordable Care Act was a giant step backwards. No matter how you cut it, it changed the rules, but it's a still. Health care in America is still a zero-sum game. The only way for one person to get 
more health care for less money. It's someone else to get less health care for more money. You use the key word efficiency. The United States spends more money on just administration than any other country, three times the normal. If we could cut our administrative costs with a single-payer system, we could pay for the unmet health care needs of the United States with less money than we're paying now. We may have to relabel it, but if I'm the head of a family, I want my cost to go down, my access to go up, and I want better care. You can label it as premiums, out-of-pocket payments, taxes. It's all my money, and that has to go down. Quality has to go up. Access has to go up. Every other country has done yeah. it. We need to follow. What's your sense, you know, as a member of PNHP, and PNHP is, you know, very active in this field, what is your sense of how or where this is at with regard to Congress? What, you know, your polling of the Democratic caucus in particular in the House and Senate. I mean, this is where, you know, like Joe Lieberman famously, because he was in the pot, the insurance companies had given him more than $1.2 million. He said, okay, no public option. What's your sense of where people are at right now? We've got about a minute and a half here until we hit a hard break. Americans are desperate for a big change. Doing more of the same is just not going to cut it anymore. It's uncertain if Congress has the fortitude to turn their back on the American healthcare industry and create something better. The American healthcare industry is the largest industry in the United States, the largest industry in the world. We spend three times on health care what the Saudi Arabians get in gross revenue. It takes a lot of determination to move away from that. It's possible that Congress may pass a states' rights health care super waiver that would allow individual states to try their own universal care plans and move state by state, much like Canada did. Uh, we have many models, and maybe the state should lead if the U.S. Congress won't. Now, Vermont elected a governor. I mean, you know, Peter, Peter Welsh, as I recall, uh, got elected governor based on this platform. The Vermont legislature pushed it through, but he was unable to implement it because there were only 600,000 people in the state. Uh, it's just too small, but California could. Uh, did they need a waiver? First, Vermont never implemented its plans because it never created the tax plan to replace what people paid in premiums. Right. We can do just fine with 600,000 people. And yes, federal law mm. now makes it impossible for a universal care plan for a state, but maybe they can change that. Okay, great. It frustrates me when I hit a break, too. <laughs> I'd like to dig into what exactly stops that, but we can do that offline. Dr. Sam Metz with PNHP.org. Thank you, Sam. Yes. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.